Thank you, Deirdre, and uh, uh, good morning, uh, history lovers and history teachers. Um, now, our topic here is history and commemoration, teaching controversial uh, topics. Uh, we're not going to talk about the C virus, are we? No, anyway. Uh, there's enough controversy around at the moment. Um, now, this is, this is a very special head school, of course, because we're, 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 uh, we're speaking to people at the coalface, uh, practitioners in the, in the, the, the whole area. Um, now, on the panel here today, we have uh, Mary McAuliffe on my right here, Assistant Professor of Gender Studies at University College Dublin, and further along, uh, Brian Hanley, uh, another regular head school participant. Uh, his most recent uh, publication of many is The Impact of the Troubles on the Republic of Ireland. Uh, and then, of course, we have um, uh, uh, representing the History Teachers Association of Ireland, it's uh, PRO Deirdre McMahuna. And thanks very much, Deirdre, for inviting us along here today. And finally, on my left, uh, Jim Herlihy of the Historical and Reconciliation Peace Society, or more poetically, uh, HARP. Now, just before we begin, um, just want to, to explain the, the format of the, the head school. Um, no, there won't be just a few questions at the end. No, you're going to have to. You're going to have to sit up straight in your seats and pay attention and uh, participate fully in our discussion here. Uh, we don't just leave a few questions at the end. Once the, the chat gets going here, uh, I will be keeping an eye out for anyone who wants to come in from the audience who wants to, to disagree violently with something said on the panel here or make their own uh, contribution. Uh, in particular, uh, I will be interested in how our discussion impacts actually in the classroom, which is not, apart from Deirdre here on the panel, would not be the, the, the prime area of the people on, on, on the panel. So we're, we're trying to, I want to try and encourage as much uh, interaction as possible between the panel and the audience. This is the normal um, the, the format of the head school, but I'll be expecting a bigger involvement uh, given the audience that's in it. Um, now, <clears throat> history and commemoration, uh, controversy. Jim, you're the man in the eye of the storm at the moment, uh, well, up recently with this, um, this uh, cancelled uh, you know, uh, state commemoration of the, the RIC, and you were the main man <clears throat> promoting that. Could you explain you know, uh, what exactly your thinking was in, in uh, lobbying for this commemoration? Uh, first of all, by way of introduction, uh, my connection with RIC goes <coughs> back to my great-grandfather, Never mind my great-grandmother, we found him on a baptismal certain and being the father, and uh, Timothy P. Lyons, one of eight, 85,028 RIC men. Um, other connections I've recently found out through DNA and relation to an RIC man who was a spy for Michael Collins, who literally could have caused the death of another cousin. Uh, I've been collecting information. My father was 75 when I was born. My father fought in the First World War. He was 79 when my brother was born, so you'd be interested in your pedigree after that anyway. Uh, my father uh, fought the Somme, came back, and in 1920, Carrigadrod Station was attacked. He was a tailor making new uniforms for the RIC. I went back with him as a child in 1961, and he uh, showed me exactly where everything happened. Uh, from then on, I was always trying to find out who was in the station, and that developed into finding the records, first of all, the RIC, and corresponding with... Uh, the sins of RIC people years ago just whispering about it and this type of thing. So I, I spent 36 years in the garage of Shikana, and just as I had retired, a year before that, a retired guard by named Pat McCarthy, above in Granard, um, he had been speaking to RIC descendants and he decided to have a mass 
remembering those that were killed on duty. He expected about 50 people turned up and something in the region of 500 turned up. That was 2012. So the following year, uh, the 19th anniversary of the disbandment of the RSC, which would have been August 1922, they decided to uh, lay a wreath in Glasnevin Cemetery at one of the RSC plots. I expected a small crowd, huge crowd turned up again. And we were advised at the time by Glasnevin that public liability insurance wouldn't cover any subsequent events or to move it somewhere else. So we decided then to go to Mount Argus Church and have an interdenominational service, an apolitical uh, service. After that then, we uh, lobbied the government, uh, with, met with the ministers. We were looking for a memorial to all policemen killed from 1836. And the scale of it is that 642 policemen have died, 525 during the War of Independence. There is no memorial in Ireland to any uh, to the DRAC or the DMP. The only two are in England. Um, from then, we had this interdenomination service. We ended up meeting uh, several relatives, literally came out of woodwork, and, and an average probably about four to 500 people turn up, and the numbers are obviously uh, increasing since. Um, what happened then was, after lobbying the minister, uh, the Minister for Justice was invited to the ceremony uh, last September, um, and he, it, as I said, interdenominational, uh, and he met with some of the RAC descendants. He also met with a lot of the RUC widows, uh, who, and they have a memorial to theirs in Northern Ireland, and he got to learn of some horrific stories we've been hearing, unbelievable, and it's like an open wound to them, and it really has been a suppressed open wound to the RAC people because they've never had the opportunity. There has been no closure. And believe me, it's very, very much uh, alive with them. And the next we heard, we, we looked for a memorial. Next we heard we got this invitation to attend the ceremony on the 17th of January, um, uh, straight out from the Department of Justice. We didn't look for uh, a commemoration. We were still looking for a memorial in the story and the memorials out of public view, which would have to be under present circumstances. But the backlash was absolutely incredible. I actually had a person from South Africa trying to befriend me on Facebook, and at the same time trying to find out where I was living. Uh, also, he was trying to make contact with people, inviting people who, may, who had any contact with me when I served in the Garda Shikana. And at the same time, he's disseminating Republican material, spreading it around the place on a different vein. Uh, the thing about him is that he was doing this from South Africa. He was the chairman of the South African Association, which was actually funded by the government, and I made a complaint to the Department of Justice uh, as a result of it. But it was really very, very, very uh, intense stuff. It reminded me of the time in 1981 when I was in Part 2 training in Templemore, and the tension that was there with the H-Block situation, I felt, and I believe me, I've seen quite a lot in my 36 years. There was nothing really uh, as bad as that. Um, that's... Okay. Now, um, Brian, maybe I'll bring you in because you, you, you published numerous articles, um, uh, um, articulating your, your opposition to this uh, official commemoration. So maybe if you could just, just uh, give us your, your uh, angle on it. Yeah, well, I mean, I was opposed to a state commemoration for the Royal Irish Constabulary. Um, Jim has outlined very well the whole kind of social and personal depth of memory there is for people and I don't think anyone should have a problem with 
commemoration of individual stories or with researching and uncovering the stories of the men who served at various stages in the police in Ireland. But I think one of the problems with commemorations in general and with the way that the commemorations have been framed here has been that we have tried to do it. We, we've used terms like shared history as a way, I think, of avoiding difficult issues. Um, Ireland and Britain have a shared history. That's true. We don't have an equal history. And to commemorate the RIC, I mean, Jim talked about the 600 plus men who died and 525 in, in the War of Independence itself. There's absolutely no way of doing that without commemorating the Black and Tans and the Auxiliaries. The Black and Tans and Auxiliaries were an integral part of the police. That 525 fatalities includes Black and Tan and Auxiliary fatalities. Men who voluntarily joined the police to come to Ireland to put down a rebellion. Anyone who joined the RIC in 1920, and I'm including the Irish recruits in that, of which there were lots as well. My namesake, Thomas Hanley, Newcastle West in Limerick, former soldier in the First World War, joins the police, becomes a black and tan in Limerick, and again, so there's Irish black and tans and auxiliaries too. They join not to go hunting for Puccine stills or to stop people who don't have lights in their bikes or to collect census forms. They join because they're becoming combatants in a war. And from 1918, there was a mandate, I believe, for Irish independence. That mandate was being pushed through by a whole variety of means, a lot of which were peaceful. But it also included, by 1920, a pretty widespread armed campaign. And the RIC were in the front line of the British government's efforts to put down that rebellion. Now, that doesn't mean I don't see these people as robots or as people whose lives don't matter. But it is a fact that during 1919 and 1920, thousands of Irish policemen resigned rather than serve in that war. Some of them resigned because they were intimidated, no doubt, or terrorized. Some of them resigned because they were in sympathy with independence. You also, of course, have policemen who remain in the force but who secretly work for the IRA as well. But I don't think you can commemorate the RIC as a force without commemorating people who very expressly joined it to fight against independence. And also then, without avoiding the wider subject of why it was the police force it was. And the RIC was a colonial police force. Colonial police forces across the empire were modeled on the RIC. It was never the same as the police in England. It was never you know, answerable to local government and so on. It was answerable to Dublin Castle, an administration in which no Irish person had voted for or had a say in. So this was a very different form of police force. It was an armed police force from the beginning. It earned the prefect's royal because of its part in suppressing the Fenian rising. And therefore, no matter what else it did, and of course, as policemen, they did a whole range of things, it was always going to be in the front line of maintaining British rule. Now, when you say that, people, I, I can even feel people kind of going, oh, maintaining British rule. There's no way of getting around the story of what we're talking about in the decade of centenaries without discussing the fact that the majority of Irish nationalists, from the most moderate home ruler to the most militant Republican, agreed British rule was unjust. I can quote you speeches from John Redmond from any period in his life up till 1914, where he says, the men of 1798 and the men of 1848 and 1867 were fully justified. Britain, British rule is unjust. The act of union was an act of usurpation. It was illegal. My only problem is that it won't work today. Most Irish nationalists believe that. After 1918, it looked like it might work. And I think we were dealing with a very specific situation. 
And therefore, I think, to commemorate the police and see it as just part of another thing we do in this decade of commemorations completely muddies the water of what we're, we're talking about here. Are we actually commemorating independence as a good thing, or are we seeing history just as a series of tragedies in which everybody deserves equality? Because they don't. Not as individual stories, but as political actors. And people who joined the police in Ireland during 1920 and 1921 and Britain made a choice. They weren't accidentally and I think that the rhetoric is often about Charles Flanagan, for example, the minister talked about men who were murdered in the line of duty doing what policemen always do. Firstly, to use the term murdered in the context of the War of Independence is a value judgment, and therefore I would argue they were combatants. But it also then implies that they would have been ordinary policemen anyway. And a lot of them made the choice in 1920 to join up to fight the IRA. So I think we've got to recognise that. So therefore, I, I think a state commemoration is inappropriate. Mayor, just uh, before you come in, just, can I just let Jim come back on the question of the, the black and tans and auxiliaries? Just, just on that point, Jim, because it, what people said was that this commemoration was to commemorate the black and tans. You know, I mean, how do you how do you de deal with that difficulty? No, nobody, nobody's denying that at all. But um, if every policeman can be commemorated, if, for example, in the United Kingdom, every policeman before 1922 is remembered, including the RAC, including the Black and Tan, once they were sworn policemen. It, it, and uh, I'm not, I would never defend the Black and Tans. You, you would want to be a clown to, to do it. But the narrative of the Black and Tans, the complete story, the amount of Irish that were in it, it's never discussed whatsoever. There was 1,095 Irish between the Royal Irish Constabulary Reserve, between the Templary Constables, between the Auxiliary Division, and the sequence in which they came in, the most casualties that there were, there was only five temporary constables killed. The others were the RIC Special Reserve. Most of them were Irish. They were sitting ducks in stations. I interviewed an RIC man. I was lucky enough to meet him. Uh, I was on the radio looking for information. This woman said, I have a live one for you. And I said, what do you mean? She said, my father's alive. And uh, he was an RIC man. And um, his stories to me about all his friends that were killed is absolutely horrendous. There was two men shot dead in the hospital above him six months after the truce um, uh, in the hospital bed. There was, the, the amount of statistics that are there, the majority of them are not in relation to ambushes or anything like that. They were going and coming to uh, uh, their station. They were out with their partners, out with their children. Uh, Tobias was suddenly shot in Tralee, just came out of a sweet shop, um, uh, just with his child. And... Uh, it's, it's horrendous, the story, just simply the story has to be told. They have to be remembered, not whatever about commemoration, I'm not interested in the word, and just remember that these were lives. And just for example, with the, the second report uh, of the um, advisory group, and it says, and it says to recognise the importance of adopting a respectful and sensitive approach to the remembrance of the historical events of the period, which focuses on reconciliation and remembrance of all who suffered and lost their lives. And I think the RIC comes in under that. It's lost lives, that's all we're talking about. Mary. Uh, yes, I, I mean, I can understand your, your argument there, Jim, um, but I, I, I must say I, must, I agree with Brian. Um, we can't see these as all equal histories. Yes, remember respectfully. I think what the um, ex expert advisory group um, recommended that there be a conference on policing, a major conference on policing, as they did around Home Rule and as they did around Redmond's uh, legacies and impacts. 
policing 19th and 20th century, which would include policing during the War of Independence and the impact of the RIC and the uh, uh, auxiliaries. Um, but a, a commemorative conference to be held in Dublin Castle, which was kind of ironic, considering what was coming out of Dublin Castle during that period as well. Just uh, And it being the first major commemoration of 2020 as well, as we go in to the War of Independence, this is really beginning to take off, just struck a, 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 an incredibly uh, tone-deaf note uh, in terms of commemoration. But commemoration is always about contemporary politics and contemporary examination of that, uh, and particularly governments crying, uh, controlling narratives. Uh, I, I think a national commemoration of the RIC cannot happen uh, during the War of Independence. For example, I, I, I would recommend that people look at a local and regional level. In June, in, on what date, date of it, the 20th of June, 2020, I'll be in Listowel giving a talk about Jeremiah Mee and the Listowel Mutiny. Um, uh, Jeremiah Mee was a constable in the RIC in Listowel. Um, rather than accept a, an order from his divisional command, commander, uh, um, Smythe, he, uh, to shoot to kill, it was a shoot to kill policy, really, of local IRA, which they did carry out. And for every murder of an RIC man, an ordinary RIC man, you know, we, we can all give you three or four murders. I, uh, the the RIC in the Stole murdered three men uh, later uh, in 1921 in Gortnaglana, in Okanur, uh, Welsh and Lyons and Dalton, unarmed. Now they happen to be members of the IRA, but they weren't doing anything that day. They just happened to be on the road in retaliation for the killing of a constable from Listowel. Um, so these, these issues, you know, it was a war situation. The RIC was on the side of the British authorities. Those who were members of the RIC made choices. I agree with Brian. They made choices. Uh, they either stayed in and participated in the reprisals that were happening. Some of them were vicious. Some of them were sexually uh, attacking women. Um, some of them were killing uh, unarmed uh, young men uh, and families, uh, burning out communities. Um, many of them resigned, particularly uh, looking into the impacts of the Listowel mutiny. Uh, upwards of 1,000 resigned from the RIC in the aftermath of the Listowel mutiny because it got huge uh, publicity in the newspapers at the time. Uh, so I think we have to look at the RIC in terms of its structure, its institutional structures. It's, per, it's part in repression and reprisal during the War of Independence, as well as the longer history, you know, from the 19th century, putting down rebellions, evictions, the land wars, but also ordinary policing. They were the ordinary police of uh, communities as well. And then, of course, the majority of the RIC coming up to 1919 were ordinary Irish men until the Black and Tans and the Auxiliaries uh, started joining. They were, it was a good job. Uh, you got a good pension. And indeed, we know that some stayed in, you know, up from 1919, 1920, in order to get their full pension. And, you know, they made choices around that as well. So all that being said and being taken into account, I think we still cannot do a national commemoration of the RIC because it does include the Black and Tans and it does include the auxiliaries. Why would we commemorate uh, a group of people who were specifically recruited and put together to visit terror on Ireland? And that was their main focus and their, uh, their main uh, practice. 
Now, I, I, just before I bring Deirdre in here, um, I'd just like to say that if, if anybody wants to make a contribution from the floor, right, uh, we, you know, just put your hand up, and we have a, we have a, a couple of uh, radio mics. I, I know the room is quite small, but do use the mic because this is being uh, recorded, and 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 you know, don't don't say anything libelous uh, uh, as well, because uh, we're, we're you know we're we're going to have a, a, a you know a cool discussion about this, right? And this thing, I think one of the problems about this is that um, you know that. A lot of these discussions, and you know, we, we can talk about this later, you know, get into kind of vitriol and so on. But the point is, it should be possible to have a, a rational discussion about these things and have disagreements and have severe disagreements, you know. But, Deirdre, I'd just like to go to you uh, to ask the question, how is this playing out in the classroom? Because obviously your, 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 your pupils are, are they're reading the papers or, you know, they're on social media and they're, they're, they're listening to the news. So how do you deal with this? A controversy like this? Um, with great caution, let's put it like that. Um, it, it, as teachers, um, we, we have to navigate a very sort of delicate path. We, we, we have, we have to, we're wearing two hats. On the one hand, as teachers, we have to follow the national curriculum. Um, and as we know, you know, in, in recent years, um, the curriculum has undergone, you know, a huge amount of reform and, and a lot of it um, we, we welcome. We also, of course, welcome the fact that at least now every secondary school child will now get the opportunity to, um, to study history. Uh, be given its special position, quote, um, given by, by Joe McHugh. So I think, I think that's an important thing. At least now every, every child is going to be exposed to a history class, at, at, at least at junior level. And let's hope then that will uh, bring them on further. So, so on the one hand, then, we're following a national curriculum. On the other hand, then, um, there is the, 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 the state responsibility kind of saying, and by the way, in this decade of commemorations, we're going to focus on the following kind of key key issues. So as teachers, what, well, what we've always done, I mean, all of this, when I say all of this is nothing new to us, teaching history is inherently valued, you know, de dealing with valued judgments. This is what we do. This is what we've been trained to do. Um, but I suppose it's particularly sensitive because it's now become you know, the topic of the day and it's out there sort of on, on, the, on the national media. But where are prime responsibility is, Tommy, is that you, we keep stressing, because it's important, the importance of evidence informing historical judgments, right? Um, and, you know, Brian, just as you said, you know, in, inevitably there's going to be different historical judgments according to the evidence. But logically, therefore, you need to provide as much evidence as possible. And by selecting, I think we are defeating the purposes and we're not doing our job. So there's Just the, the that, dear, what do you mean by that by selecting um, by by choosing to include or to exclude hmm. certain individuals, hmm. topics or events is, I think, by its nature, very dangerous. Hmm. And um, so I'm, I'm not kind of saying that, that we're, we're neutral, but I think where possible, we do try um, because that's what our training is. And that, that's why we're in the classroom um, to, to navigate, as I say, this course to be as fair and as balanced as possible. We try. Now, having said that, listening to even just the anecdotal, uh, the anecdotes so far, every parish in the country has a story to tell. Hmm. Uh, every every parish, every community, be it at urban or rural level, you know, has had an experience um, of uh, of terror and of violence is visited upon them or have been part of that. Um, all we can do is acknowledge those stories, try in a sense, and the, the key word is context, 
try and put them in context all the time. And so, Tommy, to go back to saying how is this playing out in the classroom, it's, it's extremely exciting, it's very, very dynamic, and suddenly you, you have, um, I think, more young people than ever engaging with, oh, I think I remember my uncle saying that, or I think, uh, now I understand why you, some people talk about their crowd and my crowd. <laughs> Sometimes what they mean by that, Fianna Gael, Fianna Fáil. <laughs> and then you kind of go to them, and then suddenly Sinn Féin, mm -hmm. you know? So you even look around at what's been happening in the recent general election. And I was saying to, to my students kind of recently, I said, can you tell me why, and it wasn't a rhetorical question, why are the main parties and others unwilling to talk to Sinn Féin? Mm -hmm. That's 2020. And some of them have some very interesting theories, uh, uh, depending on where they're coming from. And then an awful lot of them, though, are shaking their heads saying, I don't know. Mm -hmm. yeah. Now, that, that's an exciting beginning. Mm -hmm. you know, and you go back, good, and you go back then question. to... You know, Why don't we have a Taoiseach? In, yes. Indeed, indeed, <laughs> indeed. Jeez, let's not go there. Of, of, of whatever <laughs> gender. Uh, one thing before um, yeah. I finish, because I meant to say it when I, when I was talking. I do realise that there is a lot of hurt in those descendants of RIC families. Um, out there because the, 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 one of the biggest mass mobilizations of civil disobedience that started from 1919 was the boycott of the RIC. But it wasn't just the RIC itself. It was on their families, their wives and children. And there was quite a lot of coercion, um, <clears throat> some violence against those families in communities. I mean, the boycott went well beyond just ignoring them or, or, or not speaking to them or not serving them in shops. It, a lot of them had to leave those communities. Some of them went back to their original families in other parts of the country. Some of them actually left and went to England. Uh, and so there was quite a lot of violence. And I understand that hurt is there. Uh, but again, I think it has to be um, not measured or, or not giving hierarchies but what was going on was a war and there was all sorts of methods used in that war and all sorts of people got hurt on, on, on all sides because of it. Uh, for example, the barrack servants was one uh, group of people who were consistently attacked and most of those barrack servants were young unmarried girls. Uh, many of them had to you know, give up their jobs in terror. So not only did they live in fear, but they, they then economically were, you know, lost a very good job. Um, so they, there is all that evidence there, and that will form part of historical narratives that the historians will write um, in, in an, uh, 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 as an objective way as any historian can write. But again, I think it doesn't feed into a narrative that we have to commemorate everything, that, that, that everything is equally uh, valued in terms of commemoration uh, in this period. Anyone from the floor give us a, a, a just if you get the mic here and uh, just wait till you have the mic. Um, I was at the uh, history teachers uh, event. I think there's what probably was a commemoration about the, uh, the 1916 rising in the National uh, Museum a few years ago. And in response to a question from me, John Horn, professor of history in Trinity, uh, said no, it wasn't too soon to commemorate. 2016. I wasn't entirely sure, but I thought it went quite well. I know if you think it's far too soon to commemorate the War of Independence. It's the Chou Enlai um, approach. But the French Revolution is too soon to say. Sorry, yes. <laughs> 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 
But uh, I can remember the commemorations of the bicentenary of 1798. And I found out I knew not, absolutely nothing about 1798. But what I did find in the bicentenary was that the 1798 rebellion, in many ways, was a disaster. 30,000 people killed in six months. And seemingly, after that, nobody could talk about it. Just the same as soldiers who came back from the trenches couldn't talk about their experiences. And in 1898, there was a commemoration which had forgotten all of this disaster. All the songs that came about re-1798 were really written for 1898. It took 200 years to commemorate it properly. And I think we're in the same situation right now. My father was also a guard from 1923 to 63. And I read Jeremiah McNeese's book because I was trying to find out what the working conditions of an RIC man were. Because my father never had overtime. The Conway Commission came in after he had retired. And uh, for his 40 years in the guards, he never had that. And I found Jeremiah's uh, memoirs so interesting because his life as an ordinary RIC man mirrored my father's life in the 1950s as a guard she in the countryside. Mm -hmm. uh, the other thing I said is that um, there are certain people who are deeply opposed to this who at the same time talk about in the context of a place they refuse to call Northern Ireland. Okay, I think we're into, we're into contemporary political issues there, if you don't mind. Yeah, yeah. No, sorry, 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 sorry. No, you're into, you're into contemporary political discussion there. I, I'd be more, I, I'm more interested in getting some of the, the experience of the, of, the sorry, of the teachers here present, right, about how this controversy is playing out in the classroom. That, that's, that's our main function here. Sorry. Yeah, well, I'd like to, to ask the panel to expand on further. I'm an ex-history teacher. To me, put aside commemoration and its information about the RIC, which will inform actually our view of the War of Independence. Mm. That is at the heart of this. When the um, extraordinary, when I woke up to Northern Ireland in January, what was going on? Like it suddenly came upon me, as I say, the next history teacher, back in town's RIC. And then suddenly I realised. What are they talking about? There are two RICs, both that. Jim talks about the personal stories of the RIC. We call them the ordinary RIC. We've been given papers 81% Irish Catholic. Right? And what's special about Irish Catholic as opposed to Irish Protestant? Well, the ordinary man on the street. We know about in Cork, Sergeant Dunmore, Tobias O'Sullivan. There are so many, the, the sons of XRIC, um, who joined Martin Corrigan, Cork, Tom Barry, etc. So there are myriads of layers of stories of the RIC. But then the line comes very picked up on another thing, which I think should be expanded. The RIC as part of policy, a part of British policy in Ireland. And that, I think, would be exemplified if we examine the social composition of the RIC. The RIC are two different. There's the RIC, rank and file like a man entering the guards today. But he could never rise up above the rank of a sergeant. Why? Why was that what they call the glass ceiling? Because he wouldn't be trusted. The ordinary Catholic wouldn't be trusted. And apparently I've read 
the greater proportion of Catholics in the RNC were English Catholics because they were loyal. That's an aspect that I think that we should explore. And in doing so, we would actually heal the hurt that has been meted out to the ordinary RIC, and yet inform us, the public, of what British policy was in Ireland, or down through uh, the ages. As one story, um, John Regan, you know, who was a constable, or not a constable, he was, um, you know, a man he was, uh, where he talked about in his examination. You know how they were perceived as being really for protecting the landlords prior to the war of independence. Mm -hmm. And one of the stories was one of the three essays, I can only remember two, that they had for this is for the cadetship, they went in at a different class altogether, uh, was um, the art of salmon fishing and the art of horse breeding. Now, this was genuine, this is in uh, John Regan's uh, book. So, I think we would actually expect and demand of the historians and those people who have our knowledge of, about the RSE, like Jim, to give us the public information before we dream of commemoration. And well, then we will understand holistically what it's about. I have to say, Jim's been doing that for years, right, with, with tremendous effect. Can, can I just, uh, just the, the, the back there? Yeah. Hi, uh, just with this discussion, uh, Again, I, I, my point of view, I was against the commemoration completely as a history. Oh, yeah. as a history teacher, uh, four years teaching only. But uh, the reasons for this, and we're discussing hurt and deaths. And Jim, you've discussed a few things there about they were murdered in hospital beds and stuff like that. The question comes to bear: Why were they murdered in hospital beds? Did they commit murders before that? Uh, choosing cases of from both sides, uh, in my opinion. The RIC after 1919 was suppressing the independence of a country. Uh, there is hurt, but you have to ask the question: Why was that hurt dealt out? Mm. And that's yeah. my and th th that's my opinion. Like, why were these uh, murders or fights being taken out uh, on these people that decided and made the decision to stay in the RIC when everything was Can I can I just make an intervention here? Are we talking across purposes here, right? Because on the one hand, there is the necessity, you know, to, to first of all, to, to do the research, which Jim and all the people in the panel have been doing over the years, uh, to empathise with people, no matter who they are, with their experience, on the one hand. But what we're talking about in relation to this controversy is a state commemoration. And the point is, what the state is commemorating is the establishment of the state, yeah. essentially. And th there's no black and white th there, right, it seems to me. There's no, I mean, there's, it's, it's not a question of argument. The point is the state exists, Tommy, you know. Do you want to come in on that, Jerry? Yeah. Can, uh, respond to that. I mean, you know, first of all, Mary, I'd like to agree with you with the importance not only of information, and again, with my teacher's hat on, I mean, it's, it's our job as best we can, you know, to, to, to forge an informed and educated path through all of these kind of com complex issues. But since going back to the idea of commemoration and how we do that, I mean, you know, symbols, for instance, and ceremonies are very powerful. They're very powerful public statements. So if you take, you know, and this is something that, you know, is very much covered in the classroom as well, you know, the symbols of identity, of natural identity, you take the flag, 
-hmm. You take uniforms, you take marches, um, you take, you know, all of these very, very potent images of identity, of, you know, their, their symbols of unity, but of course they're also symbols that divide, you know? Mm -hmm. So if we're taking on either local or more importantly what we're talking about today, state commemoration, it does actually involve an awful lot of this kind of pageantry of, uh, of ceremony that itself, I think, is loaded with all kind of potent symbolism and therein lies to produce. Look at songs, for instance, and of course we know, again, going back to the recent election where songs, etc., became um, a very, very clear statement and, and created a huge, huge uh, uh, response in, so, in social media. Um, right. But I, I just want to emphasise anyway, Tommy, that notion of public ceremony and, and the potency of these images to, um, to, 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 to touch nerves as well. Brian, you want to come in? Yeah, I mean, I think it's right that people disagree. And I think we shouldn't try and teach a version of history which is about unanimous verdicts. So if you're talking about 1918, you would have to explain that actually a significant proportion of the population voted for the Unionists, a significant proportion voted for Home Rule, but a majority did vote for Sinn Féin. And you can argue a lot of the Home Rule vo votes were also votes for self-determination, which was denied. Um, but I think there's, there's a real fear, and I, I mean, I sense this from other historians, and I think one of the reasons why this controversy occurred was, one, there was people sleptwalked sleptwalk into it, in that they signed off on something. Now, there was a lot of people backtracking when this began to unravel, but I think something was signed off on, and people assumed, Jim and, and people assumed that was a, a commemoration. Um, and that happened because they were so fearful of 2016. I mean, I had so many members of my profession saying to me, of course, you know, it's a very, we're entering a very dangerous time now. And I'm saying, well, well, why? And they were saying, well, ultimately what they would come back to was, well, 1966, you know, that was a big, big celebration of, of all that stuff. And, and three years later, the war in the North happened. Now, I think it's a really, really bad version of history to assume that a massive song and dance down here in 1966 inevitably led to what happened in 1969 in the North. Firstly, they were in two different jurisdictions. They didn't have the official song and dance in the North, by the way. We had it in this part of Ireland. Now, of course, there are connections. That's the other thing. So you have to be able to walk and chew gum at the same time. And a lot of the time, people don't seem to be able to do that. It's either, you know, these people were essentially the SS, or these people were decent men who found themselves in a situation which had nothing to do with them. It's much greater than that. But I do agree with Tommy that, you know, some people do, I mean, the, the tone of the commemorations has become very much that, you know, it's there that we kind of got our independence, but we really don't want to be celebrating that too much because celebrating independence is like kind of saying that, you know, we're proud that we fought the British, and if we're proud that we fought them, aren't other people, and this is the other thing, people immediately go to bang the 1970s. If you're talking about the IRA in 1920, there's no way of getting around that. And I think as a historian, you can get around it. You can make these arguments. We can do it, as Tommy says, in a rational way. You won't do it rationally on Twitter. No. You won't do it rationally with trolls harassing Jim or no. other people. But there has to be a forum, and actually school is a decent one because you can tell students to listen to you, um, <laughs> that you, know, you can have a discussion where we can try and weigh up these arguments, but I, I sense the, that there's a, a fear that too much celebration unleashes something, you know. I mean, rebel songs, right? 
Come Out You Black and Tans is a great opportunity for a discussion mm -hmm. because it's not the song people think it is. No. Come Out You Black and Tans is about people on a street in Dublin, some of whom were loyalists, arguing in the 1930s. Mm -hmm. You know? It's not just, it's not really about Kilachandra, you know? But it also has an anti-colonial element because we lose sight of the fact because one of the great, one of the great innovations in the last 30 years has been local history and discovering what happened in our parish and sometimes the bad things that happened in our parish. But in 1920, people in Cairo and in Calcutta and in New York and in Buenos Aires and all these other places were talking about Ireland. This was a global, one of the reasons why the violence was so horrible was because it was a bloody horrible time. Mm -hmm. It had just come out of the worst bloodshed that humanity had seen yeah, to that point. And a lot of the people involved in the War of Independence had been in that war, which made them, you know, in many ways, more likely to be, to be br brutal too. Um, and therefore, that context needs to be explained. But, but Ireland was not, you know, Irish independence was a big deal. And we should be proud of the fact it was a big deal. Because I do believe concepts like imperialism are valid and concepts like self-determination. And Irish self-determination was a huge inspiration to people in India, people in Africa, people in other parts of the world as well. Yeah, I, I come to you. Just want to, I want to bring Jim very quickly in, Jim, on this question of the distinction between uh, personal commemoration and official state commemoration. That distinction I drew. I'm just, I'm, I'm just suggesting that we're arguing across purposes. Yeah. Uh, first of all, I said in, there was a missed opportunity, by, I think, by the government for in 2016, uh, with the very first, not only the very first casualty, but even the first police casualty, James O'Brien was shot at the gate, unarmed. It couldn't have been more, more apparent. But I live in hope because uh, we, just, we found out the government weren't going to commemorate uh, the DMP at, at that stage. So we, we arranged our own event, British Ambassador Lady Reid. And just as we were coming away from it, this young girl came along and she wanted to put down a bunch of flowers. Now the members of the, the descendants of the RIC or the DMP men were there in the place. And we asked her how she connected. And she said, I'm, I'm the great granddaughter of the man that shot him. So I, I live in hope when I see something coming from a new generation. Now, I think the best example on the other side of it was a funded memorial and was funded by the government above in County Roscommon. And it contains uh, not long, all the people of the parish casualties uh, from 1916, the First World War and the War of Independence, all under one headstone. And it couldn't be more significant for the RIC because there was a father and a son both in retirement, taken out and shot. The father had lost another son only about six weeks before that in Dublin. The members of the IRA from the parish are in it, the casualties, and uh, also uh, the others. Another, and another thing that's come out of it only recently is that we found that um, two policemen uh, that were out cycling were shot down in the county um, in Tipperary. And the, the curate that was there at the time, at the time uh, discovered where the um, where the bodies were, were, they were secretly buried in the bog. And he came back as parish priest five years later and had them dug up, and one was repatriated to a family above Nenfield in County Mead. He didn't know where the other man came from. And last year, the locals got together, including descendants of those involved in his killing, and put up headstone to the two of them. So there is hope, and it's coming from, uh, I love to see it coming from a new generation. And that's why we tried to keep neutral in the whole thing, just arrange an event, acknowledge what happened. It was, it was a, a war of independence and striking and independence. But my fear is how in the name of God are we going to commemorate or celebrate a brevity about the Civil War? It's going to be an absolute nightmare.
I, I think it, it kind of feeds into what I've been arguing when the, the whole controversy about this broke um, in January, uh, that, yeah, that regional and local um, commemorations, not celebrations, but commemorations of what happened in that local area, um, who, you know, and, and, and the traumas that were suffered on both sides, and um, that the acknowledgement that the history is complicated, it's very nuanced, I think local stories can feed into that. But to going back to 2016 and how the government managed 2016, they were terribly scared of it. Uh, if any of you recall that first video they put out, uh, which had, didn't have anything except Bob Geldof and Bono and, yeah. and various other people in it. Brian O'Driscoll, and I don't know what their positions were in the GPO in 1916, but uh, yeah. Um, so uh, it was a historical shite as one prominent historian. Called it, and then they they went back, and what they did is they started taking um, advice from the expert advisory group that they had put together. Now, what what commemoration is about at a governmental level is about managing the message. So they didn't commemorate uh, Constable O'Brien at, at Dublin Castle. They also didn't commemorate the civilians killed in North King Street, and they refused to do it. And it was the local uh, history group that I was a member of then the uh, Stony Batter and Smithfield People's mm -hmm. History Group that actually got together, got a bit of funding from Dublin City Council and put up a plaque on North King Street for, for the civilians uh, massacred in a cellar by, which, which? Um, uh, the Sherwood. The Sherwood Foresters, oh, no, yeah. Sorry, you know, Staffordshire's. The Staffordshire's, yeah, the Staffordshire Regiment. Men and boys, uh, as the, the women were held in another room. So the government will only commemorate that which it feels comfortable with and a message it wants to massage and put out there about shared history because this is what it, what it is to the government is about our current politics and our current relationship with the United Kingdom. Um, obviously it was different in 2016, Brexit hadn't then kicked in. Now it's about you know, salvaging some sort of good relationship with the United Kingdom. Uh, so the government wants to control the message. I think in terms of the RIC, um, missteps were made by the government, uh, and it seemed that it was taken away from the department. Not, by the way, it's not Jim's fault. I it's mean, not Jim's you, fault you, at all. I think Park job, actually, right? Park not, actually you know. weren't, and really shouldn't have been, I mean, you shouldn't have gotten the abuse yeah. at all. None of us has, you know, try being a feminist on social media. <laughs> <laughs> Or feminazi, uh, as you get called. Um, so, I, you know, all of these issues, in, in a way, are very difficult and very hard, but also they're making us talk. Uh, just one anecdote before I finish. I grew up in a pub. Um, well, my parents owned a pub. I didn't grow up in it. I grew up upstairs <laughs> in the house adjacent and above it. And my bedroom was over the pub. And all the years I was growing up, the last two songs of the night were Come Out You Black and Tans and Sean South from Gary Owen. It was North Kerry. <laughs> so that connected the um, seemingly the, the you know, remembrance of the War of Independence, although I, I do know the song is more complicated than that, and then the, the border campaign in the 1950s leading on into the 60s and early the beginning of the Troubles. Um, so people had not stopped singing these songs. People were always singing these songs over the last uh, decades. Uh, it, it's, it, they've come back into the public consciousness of the younger generation, perhaps. Um, now my niece tells me that at their, their uh, club nights, uh, they dance to a, a you know, rapper version of Come Out You Black and Dance. Um, 
And so it has become more a, a cultural meme, I suppose, or cultural trope than, than anything else. But it's also feeding in, because of commemoration, to our discussions of what happened 100 years ago. And I, I actually, in fairness, I would, I would not say it's too soon to commemorate the War of Independence. I think it has been a boon for historians, particularly historians of gender and class. I mean, the commemorations of 2013 were fantastic, of the lockout. Uh, got us all discussing, you know, the issue of class, and that has continued. Uh, the issue of gender has come to the fore. It's been an amazing period for people like me who write about the women of this period. So commemoration brings with it extraordinary um, advances in our knowledge and uh, access to the uh, digital uh, archives, but also revisiting old archives to older archives that were always used to see what was not written about by the historians in previous generations uh, that they didn't give any primacy to or, or they didn't think was of any importance because they were looking at the political or military story. Uh, I think also then you have the underbelly of commemoration where, where people, particularly on social media, take these uh, defined stances and then everybody else is horrible and nasty and evil and they're going to attack them. Somewhere in the middle are the historians and the history teachers doing their thing and trying to bring nuance and complication and as much objectivity as possible uh, and analysis and, and detailed archival research. And I mean, Jim has done such amazing work on the RIC and making those records available to us. That story will be written and it continues to be written. Um, you know, and we need to continue writing it and the next generation will rewrite our versions um, and that's the great thing about history. So I think, you know, it was a horrible argument, I'm sure if you were on the receiving end of it, but it wasn't perhaps something that was altogether bad. It was good that the discussions were robust and out there. Get in quick. A very quick question. Um, maybe I'm naive, but I didn't really get uh, the interpretations put on what the advisory uh, commission gave to the government because there seemed to be sound bites coming out later that that wasn't quite what they advised. I went back and read it when it broke, and it, it was slightly open to interpretation, all right. It said they, um, they, they recommended there be five, I think, state commemorations over 20 and 21, and the RIC wasn't one of them. Uh, and then when they talked about the RIC, that there would be a respectful um, remembrance and research and analysis uh, major conference, they did not say state commemoration. Right. Yeah. I think the Department of Justice uh, thought it would be that's the only difference. The interesting thing, though, is the Department of Justice hadn't run any of the commemoration up to now, so I think, in we, a way, they. The solar run, maybe. It was a bit of a solar everybody, run. Yeah. Everybody was sent the same letter, you know, yeah. outline, yeah. and we didn't even know what was going to happen, what was going to happen yeah. the day, except yeah. the only thing the Commissioner was even going to uh, speak yeah. of it. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, can I just say, I just think you kind of mischaracterized or passed over part of the context of the, event, of the proposed event. Uh, there's also the issue of the, the government probably considering the issue of future reunification and not just like the current Brexit thing, you know? And um, if it's looking that way in the future, like as we said, people, a lot of people think that, that it's looking that way in the future, you'll just have to get used to things like this. Yeah. I, I'm, not, <laughs> I'm not saying exactly. I'm, I'm a supporter of it myself, one way or another. But I'm just saying, if, if that's the way the country's going, you'll have to just get used to it. Brian? But the point was that the North wasn't even mentioned. The RIC were discussed in the discussion about this as if they were a 26-county force. Yeah. 
they were, there was no discussion of, at all of the fact that during 1920, the Ulster Special Constabulary were part of the RIC. They were raised as a backup to the RIC. They served with the RIC, were based in RIC barracks and so on. So the, introducing the specials into this would make it even more of a controversial discussion nor to the border. But yeah. they're part of the story as well. Yeah. Now, I get what you're saying in that if, if, if you were to seriously you know, talk about a United Ireland, there would be commemorations of all manner of things. But I think we, we, we do need to discuss what those things are and what exactly they mean and why people feel affinity with them. Because, I mean, Henry Patterson criticised the view I had in a letter to the Irish Times. And he made a, a good point, which again is, is the complicated story of the RIC, in that in Belfast, loyalists distrusted the RIC. Mm -hmm. The RIC were seen as too Catholic. They tended to be from the south. So one of the reasons loyalists wanted the specials was because they felt that the police in Belfast had been either infiltrated by the IRA or were too soft on Catholics anyway. And that certainly complicates the story, but it's not, it's not the whole story either because you had people who I, I mentioned, uh, Inspector Nixon, who's a career policeman, you know, had been in the police for 20 years before the trouble started, and he ends up leading a death squad. So again, when, he, when we talk about the police prior to 1919, the black and tans and the auxiliaries were told who to target by ordinary old Irish policemen too. And ordinary Irish policemen carried out things like the murder of Tomás McCurtain, for example. That wasn't done by the black and tans and auxiliaries. So once you, you drill into it, this story gets murkier and more complicated. I think one of the, the good things the state did do, and which I think does apply to classroom discussion, um, is that I, I'm quite critical of of digital learning and all the rest of it, but the digitization of the Bureau of Military History and the pension files and so on, and making those accessible along with things that have happened along the census and all the rest, does make it really possible to look at individual stories and to see then that there isn't a lot of glory, that things, what we now just call PTSD, mental illness and all that, that a lot of people came out of the revolution badly damaged, and you can actually look at those stories and I think they provide an interesting counterpart to what might be an oversimplification or glorification of a story as well, which I'm not in favour of either. But it is a hard thing to do, and it is, there is also a sense of pride, and, and I, we have to be mindful of that. That, you know, there's a tiptoeing because, I've, you know, this idea, if you celebrate too much, you unleash this. You know, what do you unleash? Exactly, I'm not sure, but people are, seem to be afraid of it. And the, yeah, and Um, I think the main defence that can be made of the RIC and of the, of the uh, military, more military people, is that they were operating in an economic situation rather than a political situation. And I wonder, do we understand that? That we're judging them from a political situation now, looking back. But they were talking about bread and butter issues of how to make a living. And even, even the people who came over from England, they were doing a job and they got caught up in this vicious war and they acted viciously. Um, I, I just like to know from the history teachers whether there is sufficient emphasis placed on the economics of the participants of the RUC especially. Dear, did you want to respond to that? The answer is no. <laughs> uh, no, yeah. um, d d to, to be honest with you. I mean, I, and that's where I think, you know, um, d just listen to, to what Brian was saying, that 
the, the, the great thing about this decade of commemorations, you know, whichever side you come down or whatever message is coming through, you know, at a state level or, or local level, um, it is now beginning, as I say, to, to impact in the classroom, but it's only beginning. Um, up until now, local stories were always proud local stories. But I think one word that I think everyone would agree with in terms of the issues that we're talking about now, and God only knows when we get into the Civil War, and that word is silence. Uh, and the, 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 the deafening sound of silence in terms of looking into, be it the economic, the social, as well as the political uh, in, in our history, is only now, I think, beginning to be unleashed in, in the classroom, Tommy. So uh, there's a lot of work still to be done. Thankfully, it's happening now. There has never been a better time to be a history teacher and be in the classroom as there is now. Because, you know, we, Brian, you mentioned, you know, about the, the Bureau of Military History or whatever. I mean, it's so exciting. You just need, I mean, on your phone. And let's face it, most, most young people now have phones. And if not, a computer room in their school to be able to, to go to. And it is, it's, it's so exciting uh, that, that we can actually avail of the new technology, whether you like it or not. But at least it means that, that, that students can basically be, be directed to themselves to explore these issues and go into the personal stories and circumstances more um, and look at the neighbouring parish and look at the contrasting stories and conflicting stories as well. But there's work to be done. There's work to be done. Deirdre, you've just raised something I want to throw into the discussion here. Um, as well as all the other things that history teachers are supposed to do uh, in response to the current situation, should, there, should they deliver a module either to the students or to, them, to their colleagues on the uses and abuses of social media? Because I'm conscious that no matter what you guys are teaching in the classroom, you just mentioned, and of course, you may have the, 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 uh, the pupils who are actually looking at their phone under the desk while you're speaking. The point is they are being deluged with this stuff, right? And I know, Mary, you're, you're an active uh, social media user. Mm -hmm. So I, I just, I just like to hear what is the, the, uh, some feedback uh, on the difficulties that teachers face or maybe the advantages of it. Again, instinctive direct response. Um, and hopefully the, the teachers in the room will agree with me. We've been dealing with that for years. Mm -hmm. This is nothing new yeah. to teachers, you know. Um, uh, so as you say, where teachers, um, you know, unofficially are, are expected to do all kinds of things in terms of counselling and solving uh, problems within families and, and, and so on. Um, no, but seriously, the idea of social media, it, it mightn't seem to be the case, but it is actually being tackled. In fact, you know, there are various statutes and various rules and regulations and policies that oblige us. And this, these are being enforced as best we can uh, in the classroom. So it's nothing new. But how do you contain? How do you contain it? You can educate mm -hmm. and, and advise, but how do you actually police it? That's, that's the rubble. Well, the thing is with social media, I think it is very difficult to police it. And as an active user of social media, to put my research out there and, and as well, you know, respond to politics and things like that, um, I get trolled terribly, but I've learned to how you use the, the uh, tools they give you to mute and block and the block button is your friend uh, on Twitter. Now, a lot of teenagers don't seem yeah, to use Twitter. Jim afterwards. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Berlin Wall put up a display. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. Me too. But I've been doing that. I've been, that's been the case since the, the first day I signed up to a Twitter account. But on the other hand, I have found it really useful to see 
what other uh, of my colleagues are doing in terms of research. Um, while, you know, that I, I, I run a, a Twitter account called the Revolutionary Women. So I put all, up all sorts of details on uh, what I'm writing about and what other people are writing about, about the women of Amman or the women of the Irish Citizen Army or, or civilian women during the revolutionary decade. Um, and that seems to have garnered a huge response. Now, that doesn't get trolled because it's a, it's a, I suppose, a profession. You can't troll coming on, really. <laughs> it would be silly. Um, but personally, I think social media is a, is a double-edged sword. It can be really, really useful at getting information out and, and uh, getting information yourself. But also, it can be, as happened with the um, RIC, commemoration become a forum for uh, a sort of hysterical response to a controversy. And then, you know, firstly it was a hashtag RIC and then it becomes hashtag black and tans. And there's no listening and there's no nuance and there's no complication. And there's no matter how much those of us who want to complicate the, the story and um, like I shared Brian's article and I'd written an article for the journal and any, all the historians who were going on uh, blogs and going on radio shows and talking about all the nuances and complications, um, shared all those, but still the overwhelming response, uh, in the end you just kind of had to shut it off, was the, you know, black and tans uh, hashtag, that this was about the black and tans, nothing else, that this was terrible, that these were, they were all terrible, uh, the people who were recommending the commemoration, and, you know, that, that's me being nice about the things the that people were saying. That sort of thing. That's just awful. And that is so hurtful to people. And I, I, I'm, you, luckily, teenagers don't seem to use Twitter, so they don't get an awful lot of this, but I'm sure they get it on Instagram and things like that. So social media is useful. Uh, the digital records are even better. For instance, I've discovered in the little house I live in, Stonybatter, um, in 1911, there was a DMP pensioner living in it. So that gives me an idea of the economics of um, of the uh, policing services in Ireland, particularly below the officer level. But I wouldn't agree with, with the gentleman there to say that we really have to allow an excuse of economics for those who joined the Black and Tans and the auxiliaries. There were choices to be made. And that applied to the volunteers, the IRA volunteers as well. And the IRA, yeah. Who didn't get paid. Who didn't get paid. There were choices to be made. And if you took the Queen's shilling for a particular reason, well then, you took the Queen's shilling, and there is a there is a value judgment attached to that, I believe. But I think another thing we really have to look at is the fact that many of these men who joined the Black and Tans and the Auxiliaries were ex-combatants, probably suffering from PTSD, that they were sent without any adequate training into an entirely different type of war zone. It wasn't trench warfare, it was guerrilla warfare, that they were inadequately trained to deal with, uh, they were told to fight terror with terror, uh, and as that escalated, the terror got worse. And they then, they spent most of their time uh, in barracks, a lot of drinking was undertaken, combined with probably underlying t PTSD. It's not excusing, but it's trying to mine down into the reasons for the um, real terror, I suppose, visited on communities in a way that hadn't happened uh, during more regular type of warfare, more kind of First World War type warfare, although there was terror on populations then. But a guerrilla warfare is a very different thing. 
um, and what they did, yes, we have to mine down the layers and see what happened, why it happened in the way that it happened. Um, but economics, no, I wouldn't. I wouldn't really look at that for an, a, a reasoning. Get in, get in quick here. I just gave a five-minute warning here, guys. We're, 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 our time is nearly up, so if you have any questions or contributions, now is the time to, to, to make them. Thanks very much. Um, I just thought I'd answer the, the issue of the social media in relation to history. Um, anyone who's following the news in the last few years, of course, will have heard of the Junior Cycle Reform and um, the controversy surrounding it, particularly in relation to history. But um, thankfully, um, history what hasn't suffered too greatly in comparison to some subjects in terms of the, the curriculum change. The course content has largely, and with, with in, in a way, preserved and protected by the HTI in lots of ways through their lobbying. Um, the, the course wasn't too badly uh, uh, cut. Um, but there is actually, I think, some quite, quite useful um, changes in the course that uh, feed into the very issue of social media in a way because you know that the new junior cycle history courses is, is broken into three strands uh, one being kind of Euro European and wider world history uh, one being Irish history and then there's another strand which which um, combines and runs through those other those, those two main strands called the nature of history as it's strand one and uh, it's all about being uh, historically conscious and uh, looking at sources and the um, the classroom based assessment which is basically just a history project uh, that uh, students do in second year and in third year um, you know you're rewarded or you should be rewarded according to the the, the features of quality which is basically the, the marking scheme you're, you're rewarded for a kind of your historical consciousness and your awareness and um, looking at sources and evaluating the sources you've used um, is, is a part of that. And uh, I think history can actually provide great opportunity for students to, to think about sources and, and content that's coming to them online and uh, reliability. And uh, as a teacher, it's something that I impress upon them to, to think about, um, you know, some sources are much more trustworthy or reliable than other ones, you know, particularly ones that come from university or academic um, uh, places, and also, you know, that they might be more reliable than someone's blog on an issue. Or if you are looking at someone's blog, you know, look, is it referenced, and uh, you know, can can you trace those references? And that means that you know, so there is a criticality, I think, um, which wasn't there in the old history course. Um, which does offer a kind of a guiding path or, or practice for students to, to be more kind of aware about sources and reliability, which, which I think is very useful for them for their online lives as well. The panel are fighting here to get back in uh, with each other. Jim, yeah. you wanted to respond? Just, just, uh, just a quick thing there on um, the difference between digitization and microfilm. Um, I was lucky enough to go over to Q and see what records are, AC records. They had, didn't even know themselves really what they had, so I went over with Enicon. That's how it all ends up on Find My Past. But what makes a huge difference is colour. And because um, for years I've been putting complete lists of black and tans, I finally got to uh, say who the temporary constables are, who the temporary cadets are, and who the RAC reserve are, because the temporary constables are in red. Temporary cadets are in red. And it is amazing going back into newspaper reports and getting names of, of various people who've resigned or, or left the force at the time or involved in a particular incident. That you, I can now separate them without any difficulty whatsoever. 
and uh, I'd be publishing the complete list, including the 1095 Irish. So the debate is only beginning when it comes to <laughs> black and tan. Well, that's fantastic yeah. like, that those debates continue. That's yeah, what yeah. we need to do. But one question I wanted to ask, as, as a member and past president of the Women's History Association of Ireland, WHAI, and we're having our major conference in May this year in UCD, if any people were interested. So follow us on social media. Um, are, are women now part of that history curriculum, women's history? Yeah, yeah, and, and that's great to hear because when I did history in secondary school, I had a brilliant history teacher, that's why I ended up a historian. Um, but there was very little about women in, in, the, in the history books at that time. So it's great to hear that that is now part of that uh, curriculum. Um, and, and that's what commemoration has brought about as well, is that there is now a real focus on issues uh, of those who are outside the mainstream, outside the political and military. Uh, women, uh, the working class, labourers, um, people who wouldn't be considered the leadership. Uh, and so we're getting a much broader, more complicated, more nuanced idea of what the revolutionary period in terms of social history, political history, economic history, gendered history, violence, trauma, um, as well as the military and the, and the political at that time. Uh, and that, uh, that is all the better for the next generation of history teachers and history students because they'll get more of that material and the material Jim is doing and the material we're all contributing. And I think it can only be a good thing. Um, when I look at what's happening in, say, the United Kingdom and their way of looking at imperial history, and I feel that has really fed into this rise of, uh, you know, the idea that Britain or England particularly was a colony of the EU. They like flipped that concept of colony because it's not thought um, Imperial history and the idea of colonization is not thought in, in, in or is thought in a particular way that Im imperialism as you know, a couple of bad things happened, but overall it was kind of nice. Made the trains run on time and things like that. Um, and so for, for us in Ireland that, you know, critical thinking in this age of fake news, evaluating sources, uh, even digi and digital sources particularly. And it's great to hear, you know, if somebody is reading a blog that they will look at who's writing the blog is the blog uh, referenced and adequately footnoted and all that sort of thing, that they're learning to critically evaluate material. And that can only be a really, really good thing in the age of social media and fake news. Mary, you just, you just touched on something. I just wanted to throw in the last point, which is that this comparative international situation. I, I, I was going to ask before you brought up us, how do they do it in other countries, right? I mean, do they have discussions like this, right? And, and I, okay, there's particular problems across the water, right? There's, there always are. Um, but I'm thinking of people, say, from Eastern Europe who are now coming to our shores, right? I mean, I, I doubt if, uh, you know, in Hungary, I'm just thinking, picking that at random, uh, there's, there's a similar nuanced discussion. Do you have any contacts internationally with your, with your, your colleagues abroad yes, and how they do. tackle these, these there, issues? There are, there are various kind of exchange programs, um, again, through the EU, uh, where we've had, I know I'm just in my own personal experience, but I know it is reflected um, throughout the country that uh, you would have um, teachers visiting from other European countries to basically see how come we're, we're, we're getting it right, you know, and, and, it, and it's improving all the time. 
their take experience on what we're is that it is, is, the one word I think of is, is incoherent. There isn't a, a sort of a coherent national policy like we would have, you know, a national curriculum or a national body that, that um, for good or ill, but I think we can say it is improving and improving, um, just, just, just does a sort of, uh, you know, a, a broad and a proper survey history of, of the country. And, and if I can just finish on this again, which I think makes our system stand out um, for the better, uh, and to, to reinforce what my colleague um, Andrew was saying, that, you know, every, every subject, every discipline has a vocabulary of its own, and, and the study of history has its own vocabulary. Uh, so this is something that we're very, very conscious of in, in the classroom of teaching, you know, basically historical literacy, you know, to our students, which I think is something new. Obviously, the, the, the vocabulary was always there, but it's now very much part of the techniques that we use in class. And we're, you know, they are, from the age of 12, whatever they've been taught, up to then, but coming in in first year, they've been taught, you know, terms like bias, propaganda, you know, uh, objective, subjective, you know, and so on. And these are, are very weighty, important words to be able to discriminate between and then apply them, as you say, to the various sources. So, um, so we're in a good place. We're in a good place. Brian? Yeah, I mean, there's loads I'd love to talk about, but I suppose the politics of historians and the politics of history teachers is important. I mean, I learned bias and so on from my history teachers and not in a good way, you know. <laughs> um, if, if, Irish if, if all the historians in the Republic of Ireland were the only, allowed pe only people allowed vote, we'd have a permanent Fine Gael Labour coalition, okay? Oh, you know? I don't know. No, but I'm, what I'm saying is that the politics of why history is written the way it is, why it becomes fashionable for a while and then goes out of fashion, why in the 1970s and 1980s the, the school curriculum moved in a very, a, a, a very specific direction away from glorification of nationalism, you know, and all that, we cannot divorce that from politics. And then in the middle of that, you have the teachers themselves, who are a cross-section, or a bit of a cross-section of society, who will teach the things they're interested in, the things they like, and be guided sometimes by the, the students. I mean, a good friend of mine, Paddy Mulrow, is a teacher up in Castle Blaine, he's a historian as well, but he, you know, two years ago, and everybody was talking about, and I suppose, is there an, are we assuming, or is it the case that students are as interested in the decade of centenaries as, as we are, because, you know, he was in the midst of Brexit, you know, he's in Castle Blaney, and he, he, was, he asked the kids, you know, Northern Ireland peace process, Brexit, the environment, and all the rest. He said 90% of the kids in the class thought the environment was by far the biggest issue, far bigger than Brexit, which was on the news all the time, and they were living not far from the border, and so on. And one thing that struck me in 2016, because I did a lot of public talks and events and so on, was that generally, you know, it was 40-somethings, 50-somethings, you know, I know people tell me all the time that young people are really into this stuff, I saw very few of them at events. Now, that's maybe the time the events were on. Didn't suit them. They have lots of other things to do when they're teenagers. But are they really that in interested in these issues? Um, are we assuming that because we're historians and we've suddenly been given this great opportunity to talk at length about it for a few years, um, that, that the population are enthralled by this story? Right, I've long since stopped worrying about that because you know what, all these young people will get older eventually, right? And they'll, and they'll, and they'll turn up at events like this and, and reflect. <laughs> Listen, I, I'm going to have to wrap it up there, guys. We're, we're, we're out of time, right? Uh, just, uh, just before we, we all disperse, just to say there is a special offer here today only. Uh, you, if, you, if you get the latest copy of History Ireland, the special black and tan issue, um, you'll get the... 
with an article Margaret Skinner or May Mary here. Uh, you will also get the January-February Feb issue free. So as I said, special, oh. special offer today only. Now, uh, our next History Iron Hedge School uh, will be in Boston. It's our first on a different continent. Uh, if you can make it on the 27th of uh, April, it'll be on the uh, global history of the Irish Revolution. Uh, if you can't make it there, uh, our next, our next Hedge School in Ireland will be on May Day in Galway in the Mechanics Institute. And if you can't make it to that, the next hedge school in Dublin will be the day after uh, the 2nd of May in uh, Glasnevin uh, Cemetery. We're, we're looking at the, uh, the Connacht Paris Rangers, the Connacht, the Connacht Rangers uh, mutiny. Mary, you're on, the, you're on the panel for that one. You are, are you? Oh, you haven't no. asked me. Oh, you're not, sorry. <laughs> I got mixed up. She's on so many panels. Listen, thanks very much for, for your I'm attention. I'd like to thank uh, my panel, our panel, Brian Hanley, uh, Mary McAuliffe, Jim Hurley, and Gerda McMahon. Thanks. Oh. Thank <laughs> you.